You're listening to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Kriya. This week, I'm excited to chat with writer, producer, and artivist Fazia Mirza, who, besides being a hilarious human being, is also a winner of many accolades, including a White House Champion of Change for Asian art and storytelling. But the best part about Fazia is that she is someone who believes in using the power of comedy to break down stereotypes and to approach divisive topics. Without much further ado, here's Fazia Mirza. Fazia, how are you? Good. How are you, Priya? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited to talk to you. How was the Women's March? It was kind of glorious. You know, it was yeah. really, really inspiring. And I think people forget that, honestly, there's just this power in movement. Yeah. You know, and when you sometimes you participate in movement from a desk at right. times or from a donation, but the actual act of moving, of gathering is just so beautiful and there's mm-hmm. nothing that replaces it so Absolutely. it was really empowering i can't even imagine you know a year out returning to this movement many of whom didn't stop moving you know throughout the year but just that power that you're talking about now a year into this just to hold that space i think was so incredible yes and i think that's it it's like holding space creating space yeah. there and there were new people you know and some people i think were I don't know. Like, I remember seeing a thread, which there's many things we shouldn't read in social media, but there was one thread by somebody I really like. You know, he's a great guy. He's actually kind of a well-known actor, but he just started saying, let's not see the pussy hats this year because that's really dividing people. And I just thought, you know, I get that. But if that's the thing you think is dividing people and alienating people, you're missing the point. And and it's not even forget about the mansplainingness about it. Forget about the lack of feminist thought that that is. It's like, you know what? You really it's not that that is not the divisive thing. It's just an easy target that creates division within allies. And by you saying that, it's kind of adding fuels unnecessarily to a problem. It's just an interesting time to see where people's energy lies. Well, I mean, that is something that I did see this year, that there were some activists and friends who were like, you know what, there's a lot of pussy hats out, or there's a lot of white women that came out in the first March, and they just felt like maybe this wasn't a space for them. And they're also, like I mentioned earlier, people that have been doing the work throughout this year so and, and beyond. So, But do you think there's something to the movement or the way it was created or even this emblem of the pussy hat that is alienating certain people or people of color? Well, I think, you know, like many topics, I don't believe in the binary, right? I just don't. Except, of course, it's like yes is yes, no is no. Like that binary makes sense to me, right? But otherwise, I think it's a much more complicated conversation. And the pussy hat is a great example because we've been forced to and made to believe that our bodies are something to be ashamed of. I do think there's something really powerful about desensitizing about reclaiming female or feminine or women identifying words and saying there's nothing to be ashamed of in us talking about these words. I think for far too long, there's been this, somebody says the word vagina and people say gross. You know, so I think there's something powerful in that. I think some of what's happening with the pussy hat is, you know, obviously last year there was this outpouring of white women to the movement of disgust with our government, whereas, uh, you know, women of color, people of color, intersectional people have been disgusted for a long time. 
and outraged. And so I think some people look at the pussy hat as a white woman's rage. And so I can understand that that feels really upsetting or that can feel really annoying or that can feel in some ways divisive. But my brand of activism is that I am deeply intersectional, but I think for me, it's looking at all of it and saying, yes, we all should be and can be angry. And it is irritating whatever work you're doing that somebody swoops in or comes in later when you've been doing this work or at this rally for years and suddenly they're joining the table or want to join the table. I think that it's important that the people who join the table and make sure that those voices that were there already are amongst the loudest and those people don't take over or try to, you know, hijack those conversations and make it about them and not about everyone. But at the same time, I also believe that there is power in numbers. There is power in all the movement. I do, And I do believe that the more we facilitate the rights of each other, and that's obviously only possible in a <laughs> when everyone is doing that, right? <laughs> but the more we can facilitate the rights of the person sitting next to us or standing next to us or who cannot sit or sit, the more we facilitate each other's rights, the more power there is for all of us. And I think that's the dream. And I know that's really hard for us to get to, but that's sort of how I move. You know, the more I can help you, the better my life will be too. Mm -hmm. And I think there's power in that, but that's an ideal, right? So, yeah, I mean, being an activist, however that might mean for me now, not being so much in the scene anymore, but I think a lot of what what contributes to burnout or can, can exhaust about being an activist is some of this divisiveness. I mean, I think there is a lot of policing that happens and rightfully so, you know, like you're saying, it's so important to create space at the table or to acknowledge the work of those that have been working long before us. And I think there isn't enough acknowledgement of that. But I also think that especially among the South Asian LGBTQ community, but even the LGBTQ community at large, I do feel it sometimes that it can be divisive. You're not acknowledging all the communities that may be there and that alienates them. But also there's so much fear about saying the right thing or doing the right thing or or lack thereof. You know, like some activist communities are still not aware or sensitive to, to that. So I think that's part of what can contribute to a little bit of this being disenfranchised from like the the power that can be created when people do come together is that sometimes there is that infighting kind of in these minority communities, which is really hard mm-hmm. to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think being sort of someone who is South Asian, Pakistani, Muslim, queer, you know, cisgendered woman, within these communities, I personally, over the years, And I'm sure this is a a truth for many friends of mine. I've seen within these communities such vitriol against the other. And this is not just, you know, Muslims against gays. There are plenty of women I know in feminist spaces or just feminist spaces or people who claim to be feminists who have expressed things that are deeply Islamophobic or deeply anti-Muslim or deeply even anti-queer and you know there's plenty of queer people i know who don't understand muslims at all and and and, you know obviously now it's changing as we have more people who are claiming their intersections and more access to those people because of social media but it is exhausting just sort of being the face or the voice for all of those intersections at any given moment so in some ways, you're constantly the model minority because of that and having to be the like best you can be, like the best gay, the best Muslim, the best brown, the best woman, 
the best artist, the best activist, because otherwise you're ruining it for everybody else who comes after you. So that just as a human is exhausting. That's and then so much think, pressure. It's so much pressure, yeah. right? <laughs> I, that's why I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad more people are out there now. I'm so tired of making everybody laugh all the time. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, because that's another one of my brands is art or comedy and art and comedy as but, sort of a way of facilitating those conversations. And that's a fantastic way, I think, that has made you unique. I mean, I saw you in person at the National Queer Asian and Pacific Islander Alliance, then Capia Conference a few years ago and uh-huh. you did this little set I mean it was hilarious and I remember thinking oh my god I was awestruck and starstruck because I was like this is fantastic queer Muslim woman who is hilarious why didn't I know you existed before <laughs> but it was also right. this immediate oh my god you get it and that relief was compounded by the fact that you made us laugh and it was funny it was not only okay to be who we were and to be all those things but it was like oh my God, we can also laugh and be funny and be hilarious. So I'm curious, how did you embrace comedy as part of this journey for yourself? For me, comedy was something that I was doing as far back as I can remember being a human. So I was five years old and my family had just moved to Sydney, Nova Scotia in Canada, which mm-hmm. now over the last year when I've met all these other people from Nova Scotia traveling through Canada with the film and at film festivals, they look at me and they're like, how did you survive there? Yeah. Because, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> exactly. And because it's, Nova Scotia in general is very similar to like Canadian Maine. You know, it's wow. beautiful, but it's very rural. It's very white. It's very not Muslim. It's very mostly like white Christian people and lovely people. But, you know, then we're even in the northeastern tip of this province it's like not the most northeastern tip, but it's like the second northeastern tip of Canada. <laughs> um, and so nobody looked like me. Nobody, and not even looked. They forget about my queer identity. The, the food I ate was so weird. The food my family ate, the way we dressed, the kinds of spices we used, the fact that we didn't celebrate Christmas. We were the dark house on the block. Like I remember a friend of mine had all the best intentions, gave me this Christmas gift one year. And so it was the only one I had to take in to show and tell at school because everyone had to bring in their Christmas gifts for show and tell after the holidays in January. Uh And the gift that she gave me, Rainbow Bright was really popular at the time. Right. And, but I didn't get the Rainbow Bright, Rainbow Bright doll. I got the Black Friend And I remember thinking, and now I would love it. At the time, I was like, I just want the white Rainbow Bright doll that every other kid has. Right. Which at the time, I actually think that was an act of power for her to give me the doll that most resembled me versus the other kid. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But I mean, you know, comedy for me, it was like, well, make people laugh. You're less weird. You're less different. And so it was definitely a survival tool. You know, I was never the cute, attractive, sexy girl. I was the one who was the friend. And and by making people laugh, I kind of developed all my friendships. And so that was definitely growing up. But then later, I sort of found its power in an activist way as well, which kind of solidified the beginnings of my journey for me as an artivist, which is what I sort of call myself. I love that. I love that term. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so I started doing the sexual violence prevention show called Sex Signals. And it's still one of the most popular programs on sexual violence prevention in the world. And when I was doing the show, it was a two-person show where the two, it was a male and a female, and they were talking about dating and dating stereotypes. And the show was using humor and comedy and these scenarios and improv games and then would end up 
sort of as a surprise, you'd be like, how are we suddenly facilitating a 20 minute conversation about date rape? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) But comedy was such a powerful tool in that. And we would do this show for 18 to 22 year olds in in colleges from Kansas City Community Colleges to Ivy League schools around the country. And then we started doing it for military installations, all branches around the world. And it was fascinating to see that regardless, sometimes there were nuances of the conversations that would change. And sometimes you'd be doing the 2.0 version of these conversations. But for the most part, the issues were the same and the way people reacted to you teaching them using humor was so different. It's just a way to talk about divisive topics without, you know, in a way that won't necessarily elicit a knee-jerk response from somebody. So that reminded me, you know what, this feels natural and beautiful and powerful and empowering and it works. And I imagine it's cathartic as well for you. I mean, just to see you performers, to see you speak, it's like, it's not only natural to you and it feels like natural to see you do it, but I I imagine for you and for some of the things that you've had to grapple with, with all your identities throughout your life, that it's it's catharsis for you. I don't know if that's that's accurate or... Oh, yeah. Well, ironically, the name of the company that does that program and does plenty of other programs now as well, uh, Catharsis Productions is the name of their <laughs> no company. <way. laughs> yeah. But, but for sure, I mean, I think that when people are like, well, how did you come out? And, you know, I... I I think that coming out is a very Western term in and of itself. But for me, it was very much social media and art and creating work and content. And, you know, my first short film that I made, The Queen of My Dreams, three minute short film. It's sort of a combination of me telling a story, some comedy, me becoming Shermila Tagore, like physically, um, almost like what I would say is doing drag in some ways. And then recreating scenes from this Bollywood iconic film, Aradhana. But, you know, I take myself and make myself Shamila Tagore and I take the most beautiful looking, stereotypical South Asian woman and I make her Rajesh Khanna. And (laughs) all of that, like that short three minute project made me sort of break open and embrace all aspects of my identity or at least begin to embrace all of them at the same time and say, okay, I can do this. I can be this. It's just, we're going to have to create that path in a way that no one's really talking about. You know, at least in my experience, there was really not a lot of people to turn to as role models or as, oh yeah, they did it. I can do it. Or, oh, that's how they did it. I need to read everything I can on them because they're Muslim and queer and South Asian. Because right. <laughs> you know, there's so many of those. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, there there probably are. And but, we're starting but as to see, the role but, model thing that you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and not, not many people. You know, I mean, even whatever this was, like, I guess I made that film in 2011 or 12 or something like that. And grappling with those issues before that, we just you know, who who do we look to and who do we turn to? <laughs> Even straight South Asian male identifying or female identifying people were hard to find. You know? Right. Exactly. Especially like in Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, no, absolutely. Mindy Kaling and Apu. Like, that's what we had. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, th- that is what's been fascinating, I think, in recent years, obviously, especially in the last year under the new president. But I think the shift that's happening, not that there's an abundance of role models, like you're saying now, <laughs> but there has been a shift in that visibility and in the media. Films and filmmakers like yourself 
are trying to make that impact from within the community and saying, hey, you know, we have stories that are worth telling and portraying and trying to get to the mainstream. What do you think has been the shift? And what has that been like for you to be a part of it? Any thoughts on just South Asian or South Asian LGBTQ representation in media, in film, to be able to see our stories? Do you, do you think that there's been a shift? And, and what do you think that shift has been? I definitely think there's been a shift. I think there's been an opening. There's spaces. There is space now. And I think that's like everything that's contributing to everything else is contributing to there being more South Asians who are queer, who are out there. Like, you know, social media, that being able to like, there's nobody in my community, but I can tweet with someone who lives in another state or another country or another continent, and I feel less alone in the world. Being able to watch movies on Netflix or Amazon or iTunes or, you know, being able to download something that depicts whether it's a web series or a movie youtube there's nothing commercial out there but there's this youtube star who is really weird and awesome and is just like me and i relate to them so i mean i think all of that is a huge part of it and then you are seeing more i mean i feel like it's you know it's funny but i'm like oh my god lesbians are sexy i mean i always thought they were um, <laughs> me too that we are. yeah right i'm like oh my god we're, but now we're mainstream sexy which is great <laughs> yeah. you know i think i mean now we're a commodity i guess which you know obviously again it's complicated right but south asians are sexy too which i mean who would have ever thought that we would be sexy right right yeah you know i like it or not the joke has always been like why don't we have the sexy accent you know why right, don't we sound absolutely. like the australians <laughs> You know, or the French, yeah. which, you know, again, it's like, oh, God, I'm so colonized, you know. Um, <laughs> and the shift starts with, I mean, with the South Asians. I mean, you saw 2017 being a really successful year for straight brown men, like Hassan Minaj, like Aziz Ansari, like... Um, Kumail Nanjiani. Kumail Nanjiani, yes. yeah, the Chicago, <laughs> right. of course. So that shift, it's, it's a process. It takes steps. The queer South Asian women, I think, are more in like indie spaces or activist spaces or artivist spaces like you and I know more about them and maybe they're and they're writers there's definitely more I think people populating the writing of oh, shows in yes. writers room yeah. or, or sort of behind the scenes in ways that maybe people like you and I are like yes we love them but maybe somebody sitting in you know India or Pakistan or you know Indiana <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, they may not know them right. um but I think it's definitely happening. I think there's a desire. We're talking about, you know, probably more privileged spaces. But I think as a whole, millennials are not as concerned about they're like the intersections exist and they're there. But like, I'm not mad at you because you're gay. I'm not mad at you because you're brown and I'm not like, can we just like, do you like, do you want to go see this movie or not? Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so wanna... accurate. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that like there's something that is very it, it's very different from how I was raised or the people I was around or the time that I was growing up and 18 years old and so I think that is also shifting they're they're shifting the mainstream because obviously these big corporations and brands they may not care about our feelings but they care about the people who spend money and that's a spending group that matters and so <laughs> for whatever for whatever reason these shifts are happening and I think also, the fact that we can make our own work is a huge thing. I mean, while there are definitely more spaces, I don't necessarily still feel as though I fit into all the spaces. And maybe 10 years down the road, I will, or I'll have made enough of my own space <laughs> where I'm like, oh, I can afford to be here. <laughs> <laughs> 
or I can afford to facilitate others. But I don't necessarily feel like I still fit within the Hollywood idea of queer Muslims or queer or lesbians or Muslims or queer people. Like I, I still feel like I'm in the intersections or at the edges. And I feel like I still just want to keep making my own stuff. And so I think being able to make your own work is a huge part, whether it's a digital magazine or whether it's a web series, whether it's a movie, whether it's a podcast, like we have power now that is deeply empowering so we can tell our own stories and not wait for someone else to tell them. That's a great point. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think when I interact with people that, you know, are on the fringes of the community that are either struggling with their outness or their identities or any aspect of that, there seems to be a fear to take that space. I think, you know, as minorities, as South Asian women, especially, we've been taught to like not take space. What do you think your journey has taught you? And what do you think you would give advice to like, how do you take that space? How do you make it okay to take that space? How do you embrace it? make it your own and and then like flourish under that like what what would your advice either to like your younger self be or to others that are kind of seeking that empowerment no i think everyone's journey is so different and i think that that's something that for me is the key that yes we can look at other examples and and other people and role models and find strength and comfort and be less alone but also i think it's really really important not to look at someone and say, well, I have to do that. I have to do it their way or that way. That's the way, that's the only way we can do this. Because that is not true. The way you can do this, but the way you can be who you are and who you want to be is to know that the way you do it is right. And I don't think, like for me, a lot of my work involves my mother and my connection to my mother and, you know, my relationship with my mother in the past and now and what it might be like in the future, that's safe for me. I don't think that's safe for everybody who occupies the similar same intersections as I do or similar intersections as I do. So I think that it's essential to know that your journey is going to be different. And, you know, when I think about, I think coming back to the phrase coming out, I, I, I think it's important to know that even now that we live in this more progressive world, I guess, I would put progressive in quotes, it's, I, I still think that coming out is very white. It's a white concept. It's a white construct. Because, you know, I think about like, well, what what was I going to come out about? Like, I wasn't allowed to go to prom or date boys or wear short skirts or drink uh, or even like wear like too low of a v-neck shirt. So it's like, like suddenly I'm supposed to say, mom, I'm having sex with women. Like that seems impossible. Yeah. This concept (laughs) is so infuriating to me. I mean, I remember when I I was like, okay, I need to come out. I Googled it, you know, and I remember I won't name the organization. There were organizations that had like scripts or like, you know, like, like how here's our advice on how it might go. And I remember thinking, this is absurd. I would never be able to say these words to my mom and dad. Like I could never. With like, (laughs) something I didn't know how to say or tampon. I wasn't allowed to use tampons and suddenly I'm supposed to say the word me and women and sex. Like what? Do you know what I ended up saying to my dad when I came out? I said, I like girls. And then I paused for about 10 seconds and I said, romantically. (laughs) That's the extent to which I could do it. That's beautiful. Oh my God. I mean, that's, and that was probably so hard. I still don't think I can use the word romantic in front of (laughs) me. 
<laughs> See, like that coming out thing. I mean, I this is this is part of why I wanted to do this podcast because I think for both people within the South Asian LGBT community, but but the South Asian community at large, I think there's this fascination of well, how did you come out and like what did your family say? That's great, and I understand kind of the interest of that and how much of our stories come from that. But I also would love to acknowledge that for non-white people and especially for us that are grappling with so many minority identities that it's about so much more than coming out yes coming out is this is this farce it's like a one time i'm gonna sit down with my parents and say these words in the script kind of format but it's not it's not accurate for us and also our identities we continue to grapple with coming out every day for like the rest of our lives and it takes different forms for some of us it's it's artivism for some of us it's writing for some you know it can take so many forms so i my part in doing this podcast has been this is not just about coming out this is not just about you know you want to know you know what my dad said when he disowned me because i'm you know like that's not our story our story is so much more about grappling with our identity at large and as a whole rather than just this like white LGBT narrative of coming out. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's part of it, right? I mean, that's what makes it so much harder and so much more complicated. And one of the things that I think a lot about is empathy. And I mean, it's so, I know it's so sometimes seems so little, but I I remember living in Columbia, South Carolina, when I was performing this um, sexual assault prevention show. And I was living there for six weeks at, at a time. And I went out to this one bar and there was a, there's this one bar there where it's like basically where all the weirdos go, like all the outsiders. So if you were a skateboarder or you were an artist or you were gay, that's or you were a person of color <laughs> or you dressed a little bit, that's where everyone assembled. It was the safe bar for us, you know. And I went there one night and it was black men queer night. And that bar was filled and streaming out with these black, gay, and trans men. And all I could think about was, I bet most of these people have nowhere else to go. They have no one else to talk to, or there's nowhere else that's safe for them to be who they are because of how complicated being black is in the South. And then you add to that being a black man, and then you add to that being somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. I mean, and, and, and right, I just yeah. really, and, and also the privilege that I have, I, I learned at that moment, the privilege I have of living in a really big city. You know, I have so many spaces where I'm like, oh, well, if I don't like this bar, I can go to that bar. If I don't think this restaurant, I can go there. If I don't, these friends don't connect with me, I can connect to these friends. And it's so diverse in terms of thought and race and orientation and religion and gender, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just had really like the empathy for someone whose experience I cannot actually live or understand, but I can sort of be aware of how different it is from mine and how in many ways probably maybe more difficult or as difficult in it for them. And, and so I think that maybe that's the, the advice. Maybe that's the advice. You know, it's, it's that I think there's power and empathy. And sometimes it's like the hardest thing to do right? because we want to be mad. And I think that there sometimes we have to be mad for lots of reasons. But I also think that there's there's power in looking at someone and saying and also yourself having empathy and love for yourself and then also having empathy for those around you whose experiences are different than yours. I think there's 
that creates space for all of us to sort of just be and kind of flounder when we need to, because we definitely need to flounder around a little to figure it out and survive and be strong and move forward. Yeah, I mean, I would just say I I love that. And I love the way you put that. I would just add to that and say, you know, like part of it is just embracing that that also is a journey, you know, like learn that empathy to to flounder even that it, you know, you can you can work on it for years and still have just made like a baby step and that that counts, you know, like mistakes and all just being open to that being like, I don't have to get it right, you know, the first time or the second time, like I, I can continue to learn every day for the rest of my life and have it not be like a finish line. It's just about learning that every day and opening yourself to that every day. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I know now in my life, even like I was just in Pakistan for three weeks for my brother's wedding and my cousin's wedding as well. And, you know, I joke about the fact that, man, when you're in Pakistan, you are always 16. <laughs> like Whether it's the bed you're sleeping on or being about to be kicked out of the room or, respecting your elders or, you know, be careful of what language you're using. And it's something that I'm aware of. And there are things that I'm like, oh, my God, I can walk this whole other thing when I'm around these people or in this space or in Chicago or in L.A. or in And then here I am in Karachi and I'm sort of like, hi, Salaam How are you, auntie? Just, you know, I'm just so I, I take on this other role and I don't I'm not mad at that most of the time. But I think that's part of that journey, too, is you can look at someone and think, oh, my God, they have it all figured out. And you hope that they do. But the reality of, I think, all of us as human beings is that we are constantly, hopefully evolving. I mean, my goal is that I never stop evolving. But like you said, it is a journey. And the things that we are learning, the things that we are facing, you never know what might happen tomorrow or today. And sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small. But it's it's still part of that struggle and still part of that like reminder of, oh, my God, I still have so much to learn about myself. And in knowing that that's OK, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To go off of that, I went home to LA last week. And so I have a lot of these feelings about like how you kind of regress into that. Like you just take on that role of like, you know, you're in your childhood home and you, you know, like you're around your parents and their friends and you're like, you become that. And I I think it's so true. Like in my journey, I've been out for so many years now. I think initially I was angry about that. I was angry that I had to not be my full out beautiful embraced self and I had to be kind of this thing but I think that journey has also been empathy for like that space you know not that I used to be angry that that space couldn't have like progressed you know the way that I progressed or but but to learn like that it's okay to not only for me to kind of embrace that role for that time but also it's okay for that space to not have moved the way that I've moved in my journey yeah oh my god for sure yeah and that you know and I think that's another part of you know, if it feels safe and uh, respectful to you to do that, then then I, I get that. You know, I mean, I kind of love the fact that I have this beautiful, weird family and these like rules and this very like South Asian-ness or Muslim-ness in these spaces. I just sort of love them because they're very like, I understand them. You know, they, I, I was raised within them. Right. And so they're, they make sense to me. So, so even though sometimes I'm like, oh man, why do I feel like I'm a kid? (laughs) I also sort of love the fact that that's how it is and that I get it. And it's, it's, it's very comforting in ways. So, um, yeah, I I absolutely agree. 
I, I want to get to Signature Move. So this is a movie that you've made. I'm so excited. Can you tell a little bit about the film? Not only what it's about, but what the journey was like for you and then kind of like where people and how people can watch this. Yeah, so Signature Move is a feature that I co-wrote with my friend and collaborator, Lisa Donato. It's, it's a feature about a Pakistani, South Asian Muslim woman, and she's taking care of her TV-obsessed mother, played by Shabana Azmi. Uh, <laughs> kind and, of like all uh, our mothers. <laughs> kind of like all our mothers, exactly. She's obsessed with watching these dramas. And she's the, the main character's name is Zanab, and Zanab's got these two secrets from her mom. One is that she's starting to fall for this Mexican woman named Alma, and then the other is that she's taken up wrestling as a hobby. So I guess it's probably a rom-com. I've been, I discovered this a little late, but I think it's also a mom-com. Oh, wow, I love that. So much of what I learned about myself was that there's self-love, but then also for me to move forward in my life as a human, I really had to reconcile my relationship with my mother. And so much of me is wrapped up in who she is or was or who I wanted her to be. And, you know, that that's part of this story. It was really an exciting, I mean, it's a very indie film. It was not made from through any Hollywood or studio system. It's shot in Chicago. Chicago's got one of the largest populations of South Asians anywhere in, in the country, and also one of the largest populations of Mexican people anywhere in the country. And it's inspired by my actual relationship with my ex, who is Mexican. And but you know she's still one of my best friends, so it's okay. Um, but <laughs> a rarity for lesbians. <laughs> a rarity, yeah. That's, this is a rarity for sure. But you know, I was just when we were dating, I was just struck by how much our two cultures have in common, and uh, you know whether it was the way our mothers are, the way our families are, the way our we're, uh, the way we cling to community and culture and cilantro like it is so <laughs> so similar that I, I just felt like I had to write something and I didn't intend for it to be as I guess like when suddenly Donald Trump was talking about Muslims and Mexicans in the same sentence my movie was already written like, and we were already making it you yeah, were like shameless like, plug for my film <laughs> yeah I was like Donald what what are you doing he's a fan right. he's a fan don't worry yeah exactly He's like, I love brown people. I, I'm the biggest fan of brown people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the movie, it's been a kind of a, an epic journey. I mean, deeply life-changing. I mean, last year we world premiered at South by Southwest in March. And since then have screened at over 110 film festivals around the world. We've won about 13 awards. And it's exciting because, you know, I've been sort of in these spaces and developing you know, art and short projects, short films in the web series and going to all these festivals and festivals have curated um, my work. And it's just been amazing to take that next big step after, you know, six, seven years of, of being in these spaces. And it will be on Amazon, which is very exciting. Oh, that's um, amazing. And, you know, it's been an amazing one. I mean, Shabana Azmi is an epic human being and an even more epic actor and, you know, really just did this film out of her desire to uh, break down stereotypes. I mean, she hadn't done a queer film since she made Fire 20 years ago. The one, um, the only Fire. The wow. one, the only. I don't know if you saw this. I feel like this is probably going to, who knows, maybe this will be like the biggest thing that ever happens in my life, which would still be amazing. But I was in 
Mumbai for two different screenings of the film in 2017. And one of them was at the Geomami Film Festival, which is the largest uh, film festival in India. And it's in Mumbai, and Shabana was in town, and so she came to the screening. And then it was Diwali, so she invited me to a Diwali party at her family's home. And it was just sort of this crazy, beautiful, I was like, what? world have I walked into. <laughs> um, but n- there were many stars there, which was un- like, she's like, Fazia, you must meet Rita Groshen. And I was like, oh my God. Yes, I must indeed. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it, there's a, this is insane. But one of the coolest moments was she introduced me to Nandita Das. Oh my God. And yeah, oh my God. And she's like, Fazia, meet Nandita. And she's like, you know, Nandita. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I know her. Yes, I was gushing (laughs) over her. And I was like complimenting her. I was like, oh, my God, Fazia, you're such a fangirl right now. Calm down. Be cool. Be cool. cool." How can you be cool? (laughs) You can't be cool, dude. I'm so glad you weren't cool because that is so real. (laughs) Yes. And then, you know, Shabana is so gracious and so loving and cool. She said, Fazia, you, mu- you need a picture with both of us. And I was like, okay, yes, I would love a picture. <laughs> sure. Because I wasn't going to ask for one because I was trying to be cool. Right. And so I'm in the middle and they're on either side. We take a picture and then Shabana says, now let's do one, Nandita, where we're kissing Fazia's cheek. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Are we reenacting fire with the three of us? Yes. Just just nod or or not? Yeah, without the pain. Without the pain, only the Only joy. the beauty. Wow. Yeah, that is an incredible, beauty. incredible moment. Yeah, there's a you can find the picture. It's on my Instagram at the pause. <laughs> you can find it. It's it's pro- yeah. It will probably be one of wow. the most epic moments of my life. <laughs> what, do you, I mean, you talk about this party. You talk about that moment. Do you think you know with signature move in general, or or even that experience? Do you think there was part of you that it, like comes full circle, like your own journey? You talked about how how this unpacked a lot for you, but w- was there a part of you that was like, oh my god, like my from from my little closeted Nova Scotian self to like this moment? What like what a what a feat what a full circle it has come well it's definitely reminds me and i think the process of making anything or doing anything there's there's there, it's so important to look at it and say you know yes we did this thing but like what am i learning from it especially having perspective like what can i be reminded of or what can i learn or what can i learn that i need to change or be confident in or or feel good about and i think for me one of the things i was deeply reminded of is I'm not a trained actor. I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to theater school. This is sort of all me making it up as I go along or asking a lot of questions or working with really smart, talented people and collaborators. And one of the things I learned was trust your gut. Like your gut is there and it's smart and it's giving you good advice. So, so learn to listen to her and don't, you don't have to second, second guess yourself sometimes, but don't do it all the time because you're okay. You know, and I think, I think we do that so many times, whether it's as thinking we have imposter syndrome or as women, you know, or as as South Asians, you know, we're like, I don't know, am I doing this right? Or are they doing it better? And it's okay. You're doing it right. And I think the other, one of the other things is it is, it was, I think now I'm thinking about, wow, I'm so lucky to have had those experiences, but also, you know, it is possible to have a dream and to see it through and to have the success that you dream of and that when people are like oh don't dream too big just dream kind of 
close to what you want. Dream big. Whether it gets there or not, <laughs> Screw those it people. matter. Yeah. In part, I truly believe in manifestation. And so, you know, even if you're thinking about it from a business perspective, one thing is like, think about the things you need to do today. Then think about the things that you want to do two years from now. Then think about the things you want to do five years from now and 10 years from now. That's all part of manifesting your dream. And it is possible. It really, really is. And I think some of it is letting go of some of the ego. Some of it is having the insanity to just believe that anything is possible and that people will go along with you. <laughs> like, I'm like, wait, you drink the Kool-Aid? Cool, let's do this. You want to give me money to make this weird Muslim Mexican lesbian then, wrestling movie? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, wow. But but I do, you're right. I believe, mm. I believe that, it, I, you know, anyone can think, okay, can I leave my job in the corporate world and do this other thing? Yes. Might it look exactly as you thought? Maybe not. Probably I mean, not. I, probably <laughs> not. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I have plenty of friends who, you know, either we started acting at the same time or they started acting after me and their path is very different than mine. And I think I'm like, I'm on a circuitous one. My journey <laughs> is we're going through all the caves and, you know, we're going to like go over here and hang out here for a while. Maybe we'll get to that studio. Maybe not. But there's so much joy in, in, in this journey. And I feel so I, I know that there's privilege involved and there's luck. And I, I'm just so full of gratitude for all of it. That's beautiful. I mean, I, I can't think of a better note to end on. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, for being on. Can you let our listeners know where to, to follow you and to follow your work? Yes, you can follow me electronically um, at the Foz. Hopefully not in person. Sorry. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking that. I didn't say it, but I was like, Ugh. I was going to make that joke. And then I was like, I'll let it go. Um, but you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Foz, which is T-H-E-F-A-W-Z or Z for all the Canadians. And my Facebook page is Fazia.Mirza. And you can see what's happening uh, over there. And I would love, I, I definitely talk to folks who, who post stuff or respond to me. And, and so we can always chat up. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited for you and congrats on Signature Move and all the success you've seen. I can't think of, of anyone more deserving and more hilarious um, to, to get stories oh. like this out there. So thank you so You're much for lovely. what you do. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you for, for doing what you do. I mean, it's <laughs> such an important thing to have create yeah. space and, you know, give voice and create platforms. It's, it's essential. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Fabia. Yeah. Thank you. It was great chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening.